Acts 10. I confess to you that I think the Bible is a pretty special book. The bibliographical evidence, the archaeology, the history, the unity, the fulfilled prophecy, I think separate the Bible from any other book of antiquity. I believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Some might call that an occupational hazard. Some might call that a form of job security. Some might even call that a biased or prejudicial view. I don't claim to know it completely, and I certainly don't claim to live it out perfectly, but I have devoted my life to where we as a congregation can know it and incorporate it into our lives. Knowing that, you'll understand then why my hair stands on end when I hear others who fancy themselves as spiritual teachers take pot shots or create straw men arguments in criticizing and attacking the Bible. And then they have, you know, their followers who kind of nod in agreement or fall in line. And whenever I hear somebody say, well, the Bible's just full of contradictions, I typically will say, huh, can you name me two of them? All they're doing is just repeating something they've heard but really cannot substantiate. However, there are instances in which I have heard or read people comparing, let's say, the dietary laws of the Old Testament or a civil or ceremonial law for Israel and wonder how come this is not repeated in the New say that, well, God has obviously changed his mind about how he's dealing with Christians. The Christians are hypocritical in how they apply the Bible because they're not applying these dietary laws, blah, blah, blah. And I think this reveals, at the least, a very limited understanding of God's plan through the ages. And the reason I say that is because God promised even in the Old Testament that there would come a new covenant a new covenant, and that Christians would not be obligated to the Old Testament law, particularly the the civil and ceremonial portions that were intended for Israel. For instance, we see this in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, if you want to know what all that means or what the implications of that are, well, then look at how the New Testament views this very passage as in Hebrews, it's restated, and then we read in Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I suppose we could explain it this way. That thinking that we live by the Old Testament law is like living in Missouri and not being subject to to the laws of Texas, but you think you're subject to the laws of Texas. You don't live in Texas, but you think the laws of Texas apply to you. 
I mean, there's no state law in Texas that applies to us because we live in Missouri. Texas and Missouri have their own statutes, right? Now, there are laws that are restated in both states, such as the law against murder. There are, likewise, moral laws in the Old and New Testament. But we are not obliged to keep the Old Testament law. The things that no longer apply to us are not repeated in the New Testament. Again, we live in Missouri. We don't live in Texas. Now clearly the Old Testament, Mosaic Old Testament, is no longer in force. It's been replaced for everyone, including the Jews, by the New Covenant. But there are universal moral laws like murder, immorality, homosexuality, that were in the Mosaic Law that are also repeated in the New Testament. The civil and ceremonial laws, along with the punishments that were prescribed, no longer apply to us and are not repeated in the New Testament. Why? Because we don't live in Texas. Right? God said all along that a new covenant was coming. And the Old Testament serves in for us today as kind of a, a shadow, a forerunner of the new. You might say that it helps us to appreciate and understand the new covenant. It also serves a purpose by shining a light on how far we fall short of the holiness of God, the law of God. We read this in, in Romans 7. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so the law demonstrates for us our sin. We didn't know we sinned until we see the law, right? It's like, you know, when you're driving down the street and you're going 40 miles an hour and you get a ticket. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I didn't know that this was a school zone. I didn't see the sign. Well, the cop's going to say, well, the sign's back there. Because you didn't know, it doesn't change the fact that this is a school zone. You're still going to get a ticket. The law demonstrates to us that there's sin. Now, I say all this. Because you're going to hear the charge that Christians are picking and choosing Old Testament laws, like when we, you know, talk about sin of certain immorality or whatever, but we don't follow all the other details of the Old Testament law, the civil and ceremonial laws, right? And people don't understand, well, wait a minute, we're no longer under the Old Testament law. Now, Christians who think this way and those who kind of level this charge against the Bible, because there are Christians, by the way, who think that we're still under the Old Testament law. Obviously, there are those who are critical and claim that uh, we're being inconsistent. I think demonstrate either an ignorance of God's plan or a blatant disregard that we have moved from an old to a new covenant. Again, we are not obliged to live under the Old Testament law. However, there are cases in which universal moral precepts or principles are repeated in the New Testament. 
I mean, we're having difficulty 2,000 years later after the New Covenant understanding this. Because people still want to go back to the law. Imagine how difficult it was to be a Jewish believer 2,000 years ago. And the New Covenant is introduced and you're trying to understand how this relates to becoming a Christian. It was very difficult for Jews to accept because for centuries, too, they uh, you know, really enjoyed being God's chosen people. But that kind of created an unfortunate result because many of them looked down upon those who were Gentiles, not born Jews, and they, they kind of built a hedge around themselves, the Jews did, and this kind of made up their special religious observances. So any person who did not observe the ceremonial laws, they were considered unclean. Couple all this with kind of their intense national pride, and you have something almost bordering on racism in terms of their views towards Gentiles. In fact, Gentile was originally just a term to mean a person who was a non-Jew, and later became involved into this derogatory term, kind of like how we would use scum, or scum of the earth. That was how Gentile was used. The whole Jewish tradition said to the Gentile, stand back. You're not a part of us. I mean, even the architecture of the temple said it with the, the outer court for the Gentiles. Then you had a a court in from that that was for women. And then you had the inmost court for the men. Very patriarchal. After that came the, the temple proper, which only the priest could enter. I mean, even the architecture said, stand back. And then there were, there were ranks of people to match this architecture. You had a high priest, you had lesser priests than men, than women. Finally, you know, the dirty Gentiles on the outside. They had to stay away from that which is holy. This would explain why in Acts 21, Paul is dragged away by the Jews. Why? And by the way, by the way they threatened to kill him because he brought a Gentile into the temple. So there's this rank kind of religious prejudice Oh, that that was gone, but it's not. There's still a lot of prejudice today, religious prejudice even, from one denomination toward another, kind of a way for some people to feel superior over others. Um, in modern parallels, I suppose, are difficult to come by in one sense because we live in a, in a secular culture. It seems that nothing is holy. But we can certainly get a bead on a prejudice when we think of racism, right? I mean, it seems now to more and more rear its ugly head between blacks and whites. And by the way, it's not just the media trumping this up. I'm not saying they don't do it. Certainly they do it. But all you got to do is talk to a member of the black community and ask them if racism still exists and how systemic it is. You'll understand there are real divisions. Class struggles still persist, uh, persist due to, you know, economic standing. People still look down on others because of the car that they drive. 
People get high and mighty because they went to a certain school. You didn't go to that college. Or you don't have that degree that they have. Or people feel superior because of the home they live in. And there are all kinds of ways that our flesh will take the opportunity to try to feel superior. So in that sense, I think we can kind of relate to what's taking place in Acts 10. Acts 10 is really a a practical outworking of the new covenant. God is dealing with his people, and he's trying to let them know how this new covenant is going to be applied. And some Jews would need a serious object lesson, and God was going to oblige. Now, this is not God being inconsistent. This is not God being hypocritical or contradicting himself. It's the outworking of going from Leviticus to Galatians. The law to freedom in Christ. It's a real-life lesson of the old covenant to the new. It's God making an emphatic point that things have changed dramatically, monumentally. The events, in fact, in Acts 10 are so important that it's repeated by Luke, the author of Acts, a couple different times beyond Acts 10. Because historically, it is a monumental event. Now, we're going to read a portion of the story and deal with that. We'll read the rest next week and deal with that, at least of this section. So let's stand as we look at Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, who was known as the, uh, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. In his book, A Savior for All Seasons, William Barker describes a bishop from the East Coast who visited a small Midwestern religious college over a century ago. While there, he stayed at the home of the president, the college president, who was also a faculty member, a professor of physics and chemistry. And during their stimulating after-dinner discussion, the bishop mentioned his confidence. Uh, the new millennium is going to come because the world has already seen all the discoveries that are going to happen, and no new inventions could he envision. And by millennium, he means when Christ is going to come to, uh, to, to rule again. I mean, what further reason would the Lord have to delay because human progress has gone about as far as it can, according to this bishop. The young college president was trying to be polite, but he disagreed. He said, well, I think there are a lot more discoveries that can be had, a, a lot more inventions that could be offered. The bishop got a little angry, and he challenged the president to, well, what do you mean? Name one invention that could 
come upon the world that hasn't already been offered. And the president replied that he was quite certain that within 50 years, men would be able to fly. <laughs> Nonsense, said the bishop. Only angels are intended to fly. The bishop's name, his last name, was Wright. And at home were two of his boys named Orville and Wilbur, who loved to fiddle with mechanical things. They went from bicycles to airplanes. Two boys had a significantly greater vision than their narrow father. In many ways, I think this kind of describes the Christian life. Because I think the church, and I don't think this is just the American church. It can be anywhere, all right? I'm not trying to dog the American church. But we're limited by how we think about God. We have a small vision about what God can do. I mean, I think God's grace and love are so expansive that it can change social structures within a society. I think his power is so matchless that, that no human bondage can outlast a humble heart changed by the gospel. In many ways, maybe our greatest struggle in the Christian life is not to be so constrained by the existing thoughts, by the existing churches and how they approach things, by the structures. It's a, it's a lesson that Cornelius and Peter would have to learn in a dramatic way. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Caesarea was a city that was rebuilt by Herod the Great in honor of Caesar Augustus. Unlike Lida and Joppa, which were mainly inhabited by Jews, Caesarea had a dominant population of Gentiles. The Jews were the minority. There in Caesarea lived Cornelius, a centurion. That meant he was a Roman officer over a hundred soldiers, and he was a part of an Italian regiment that was 600 soldiers. And by the way, life wasn't so easy for a centurion. Historians tell us that over half of centurions never made it to the age of 40. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Well, we know what devout means. In this case, for Canus, it meant he was very generous to give to the poor, and he prayed to the same God as the Jews. And yet, he was still considered an outsider. Why? Because he wasn't circumcised. How do we know that? Acts 11.3 tells us that. One could not be a true convert of Judaism if they were uncircumcised. So he would still be considered a pagan by committed Jews. So here you have a religious man, a generous man, but he's considered an outsider. The great question for the early church at this time was whether a person would have to walk through all the requirements of Judaism to be a Christian. 
In some ways, that question is being asked today. Because for some denominations, to be a part of that subculture, you have to abide by a list of certain rules to live by. Could be, you know, don't drink or something. You got to sign on the dotted line, right? There's a whole host of things. And if you don't sign, you're not a part of the group. And the message is, you're not all in. You're not really a Christian. That's how some will interpret it, unless you abide by these things. And the Lord is answering that general question in an exceedingly plain fashion in this story that Cornelius is involved in. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And so his prayers, his giving was like a sweet aroma to God. And God sends an angel to give him a message. Now, it's worth noting how Cornelius responds, and it's worth noting what posture he's in. Uh, he responds with terror and humility. What is it, Lord? I think we could use a little bit more fear of God today, don't you? I mean, I, there's something beautiful about the acceptance of, of God speaking. You know, there's a divine messenger, an angel, and there's no doubt about it. And then there was this willingness to listen. What is it, Lord? You know, whatever you want. What is it? A scientist tells us there's a growing number of people who are at risk of, of hearing loss because of their personal devices and the earbuds are turned up so high. Well, I think there's a, there's a greater risk of a growing number of people who can't hear anything from God. I mean, God could, God could speak in a loud voice and split the sky. And people have some naturalistic explanation as for why that took place, right? God could speak to us in our, in our time with him, in the word, and we're thinking, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I didn't check Google News today, let me check, see what the news is. Hey, what was the scores, right? It's like the, the Holy Spirit is speaking, and we can't take 10, 15 minutes of silence to continue to have the conversation. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a spouse that won't tolerate that when I'm in the middle of a conversation. I can't imagine how God feels. I want you to notice how spiritually sensitive Cornelius was here to treat a messenger from God with such respect. And he gives this appropriate response. You know, what is it, Lord? Oh, we can assume that this man was praying. Said he prayed continually to God. We're assuming he was praying there at this moment. Isn't that a great time for God to convey something to us? When we're listening, we're in the word, we're praying, we're conversing with him. It's often in prayer that our hearts are in a position to listen. Amy Carmichael said, God always answers us in the deeps, never in the shallows of our soul. And prayer invites us to dive deep in his presence. But when God taps your heart or the Spirit of God speaks to you softly, we have to learn the discipline of listening. 
of listening. I've said this before. Years ago, Janet and I went to a counselor, and he had us do this practice, listening to one another, an exercise. And we called it a 10-10. I think I've shared this with some of you before, where you had to, you had to sit across from each other at a table, and the other person could ask whatever question they wanted, could say whatever they wanted, and you just had to listen. Now, if it was a question, I could, I could maybe write some things down and then reply later, but I couldn't, you know, you couldn't roll your eyes, you couldn't go, all right? None of that. You had to look in the eyeball and just listen for 10 minutes. Do you know what it's like to listen for 10 minutes without saying a word? Do you know what it's like to listen for 10 minutes without getting defensive? Try it. See how difficult that is. And the only response that we could have afterwards is that I could only ask questions to understand what it was she was saying. So what you're saying is this? I couldn't say, well, listen, you said this and I'm telling you, blah, blah, blah. No, no. The only questions you, you could ask was to try, to try to understand. That is a lot harder than you think. And just apply that with God. How easy it is to have interruptions. How easy it is to have your mind wander. It's a discipline to listen and to respond appropriately. Charles Spurgeon, perhaps the best known preacher of his day, would preach to thousands and people would line the streets waiting to get in to to hear him at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And one day he was going to preach in the agricultural hall and it was a, a big place. And he was testing the acoustics before anybody got there. So he didn't think anybody was there. And he gets up on the stage and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Unbeknownst to Spurgeon, there was a worker high in the rafters of the building who heard his voice and came under such conviction at just that verse that he came to Christ. Now that's listening quickly and responding God may surprise us and speak to us on the job or maybe while in prayer. My question is, are we positioning our hearts in a humble position, eager to listen, to learn, to yield to the voice of a holy and mighty God? I mean, what other appropriate response is there? And now send men to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, you know, up to this point, we don't hear how God was maybe explaining to Cornelius what he had in store for him. We don't see any of that. And that doesn't seem to bother Cornelius. He listens, he then immediately sends two of his house attendants and a fellow soldier to go and fetch Peter, who's in Joppa, 33 miles south of Caesarea. Now, Peter had been staying in Joppa after being called there to raise Dorcas from the dead. And he was staying with another man named Simon, who was a tanner. A tanner was one who dealt with the hides of dead animals. And according to Numbers 19, under the Old Testament law, 
this would have made a person unclean. So it was not a job that Jews would take. We can assume that Simon was probably a believer, which is why Peter would have stayed with him. But the fact that Peter was staying with him indicates that Peter was a a work in progress, that God was opening the door because he at least was willing to have some level of relationship, fellowship, receive some hospitality from a Gentile. No rigid Jew would have accepted hospitality from a tanner. And we know that Peter provided some pushback later when God told Peter, hey, you can eat unclean animals. Ah, Wait a minute, God, not sure I'm hearing you right on this. We'll get into that later. The point is, is that I wonder that if Peter would have rebuffed Simon the Tanner, if he would have been ready to get the vision about the four corners of the unclean animals, the four corners of the sheet, you know, as it came down, we'll, we'll get into that. But the point is, this, this smaller obedience with Simon the Tanner, I think, prepared him to accept the greater truth that would come later. So our obedience in seemingly smaller things prepares us for bigger opportunities. What does this mean for us today? What does it mean that God is is creating this wide swath for the gospel, for people of, of all types to come to him, that God's grace is great and it's to be a gospel for all people? Well, a couple things I want to throw out for your consideration. Number one, in a way of application, I think we need to embrace a theology that welcomes social justice. The reason I say this is this, that all people are made in the image of God, right? So doesn't it make sense then when we, when we fight poverty, when we fight against racism, abortion, or other social ills, that that, that is something that God values because God values each and every person? I don't understand the idea, by the way, and I've heard this said, and if you don't know, by the way, what I mean by this, don't worry about it because most people don't care, but I would take a premillennial position that means that simply Christ is going to come back and then there's going to be a literal kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth after Christ comes back. Now, there are people who don't agree with that, and and I've heard it said that people who are premillennial usually don't go in for social justice because they think the world is going to hell in a handbasket until Jesus comes back anyway. Now listen, I went to school at the preeminent premillennial school in the United States, Bible college. Undergraduate, graduate degree. I never once, not once, heard a professor or anyone say, you know, because God's got this future plan, don't worry about getting involved in stuff. Never once did I hear that. To me, it's kind of a straw man argument. But nevertheless, I don't need a certain eschatology to motivate me to be involved in the world. Because if I believe that everybody's made in the image of God, then wouldn't it behoove me to show respect and dignity to every individual regardless of their plight? Yes, it would. Frederick Douglass, one of the leading abolitionist voices of the Civil War era, repeated, I think, a a chastening refrain when he said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. I mean, he was railing against people who were 
trying to justify slavery in the church. I can certainly understand why he would say that. It reminds me of the letters from the Birmingham jail that Martin Luther King wrote in the 50s, trying to gain support from other pastors to join him to fight against racism because it was so difficult to get other people to come alongside. Because you know why? We just preach the gospel. We don't involve ourselves in all that social stuff. When we take the gospel to the world, we seek to shorten the gap that Frederick Douglass talked about between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ. We want to make that one. Secondly, an application, I think, of what is going on here in Acts 10, reject dehumanizing anyone because of race, politics, economics, religion, sex, or any other reason. In his book, Less Than Human, Professor David Livingstone Smith explains that ordinary people can demean, enslave, and kill other human beings. And based on his research, he states that there's one important ingredient, the dehumanization of the victims. Smith says this, thinking about your enemies in subhuman categories is a way of creating mental distance, of excluding them from the human family. It makes murder not just permissive, but obligatory. We should kill vermin or predators. He goes on to explain that the early American settlers in Arizona characterized Native Americans as savage beasts. The Nazis depicted Jewish people as rats. The Japanese invaders of China called their victims chankaro, which means something subhuman, like a bug or an animal. Prior to the 1994 Rwandan genocide, the Hutus, who killed the Tutsis, routinely referred to them as cockroaches. America fought barbarian Huns in World War I and godless gooks in Vietnam. When we slap a dehumanizing label on people, it's much easier to strip them of their dignity and mistreat them. So listen, how does this get applied today? We as believers must work hard not to have this dehumanizing effect upon others and throw out of our vocabulary the terms that do that. Let me just throw a couple out to you. And I know some of you might get upset. God bless you. I love you anyway. But if I was on the receiving end of some of these thoughts or ideas, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. And maybe if that's your goal, then goal accomplished. Here's some. Feminazis. Faggots. Niggers. Any other racially derogatory term. Libtards. There's a host of other dehumanizing language. We reject those terms. Why? Because we're to reflect, of all people on the face of the earth, we're to reflect the image of God in others. In everyone. And we are to build bridges to the gospel. Don't blow up the bridge with such terms. God is calling us here in Acts to live consistent as new covenant believers that the gospel is open for everybody. We give dignity and respect 
to everyone, regardless. It doesn't mean we can't call out some things of sin, but we do so with respect. We do so, first of all, communicating human dignity. Let's pray.